is Keeping It 101, a Killjoy's introduction to religion podcast. For 2021-2022, our work is made possible through a public humanities fellowship from the University of Vermont's Humanities Center. We're grateful to live, teach, and record on the current ancestral and unceded lands of the Abnaki, Wabanaki, and Akosisko peoples. As always, you can find material ways to support Indigenous communities on our website. What's up, nerds? Hi, hello. I'm Megan Goodwin, a scholar of American religions, race, and gender. And hi, hello. I'm Elise Morgenstein First, a historian of religion, Islam, race and racialization, and South Asia. Shh. Don't talk so loud. Wait, what? I'm talking normal. Seriously, woman, keep it down. This is a podcast, Megan. All we do is sit and talk into microphones, which are voice amplifiers, and I do not understand what you are doing. (laughs) We, we are doing a thing today. What, What kind of thing, Megan? It's a field trip. We're in the museum. Museums, like libraries, demand quiet, ruled bodies. Do not be unruly or you will influence me to be unruly. And you know that is my favorite way to be. <laughs> Megan, when I when I said we should do an applied episode about museums and world religions and how the world religions paradigm shows up in museums, because museums, like religion, were developed under imperialism. And then when I said we should call it Night at the Museum because jokes, I... I did not think you would take the bit so far as to act like we are in a museum on the recording. Well, then you have misunderestimated my commitment to the theater. Well, then I am silently rolling my eyes for all to hear. Good. Good Foley work. I love it. You're getting it. But we can't actually pretend to whisper this whole episode. It's annoying. So so I suppose this is where we just introduce what we're doing and get into it. I suppose. All right. Today, we are talking museums because museums are often a way to see the world religions paradigm preserved literally and often not a good way in real life. And while we're going to do this in a vaguely silly way, as is our want, we are also joined by the very serious, very funny Dr. Andrew (laughs) Ali Agapur, a rock star of a scholar. His expertise is on intersections of religion and science, American politics, and pop culture. He's also a comedian and a playwright, but he's here because he is also a consulting scholar at the National Museum of American History. Andrew also happens to be part of the Mishpocha, my chosen extended family, so I suppose just asking him created a guilt space in which he had to say yes. (laughs) Nepotism aside, this triple threat of a nerd is exactly who I want to give us, you know, a tour guide in the museum. Yes, yes. We definitely strong-armed Andrew into being here with love. But yes, good. This is more like it. Be in this museum. Be in the space. In fact, I want to see the exhibits now, so... No, sir. I, I didn't see you playing with your lesson plan again. Truly, nerds, picture it. 2022, masked. Or 2021 or 2001 or 1991, unmasked. That seems so strange. You are in a museum. It's in your city or your town or you're somewhere, oh, fancy. Or if you've never been made to go anywhere, maybe it's on a TV show like uh, Buffy or on your campus and your professor made you go. When I see that museum in my mind's eye, besides being sort of big, like grand, a sense of spaciousness and quiet, of course. I can also picture how things are arranged. I don't care what museum you're in, natural history, art, city history, maritime. I do love a maritime museum. Doesn't matter. Remember when we went to the railroad museum? Anyway. I, I, I put that in there just for you, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> museums are typically arranged and the museums that aren't arranged are usually famous for their purposeful chaos. Anyway, museums are ordered so that viewers can learn, so that like I, so that like items hang together, whether that's similar periods or regions or subject matter. Often they're ordered in such a way that if you were to wander about, there would be a clear delineation between objects either assumed to be or, as we'll talk about, argued to be different. Absolutely. Yes. In addition to being places we imagine as serious and formal and elite, Museums are physical buildings with collections and objects and storage facilities, but they are also arguments, values, statements, and embodiments of ideology. Yes. So today our lesson plan is simple, but not even a little bit simplistic. We're talking about 
how world religions show up in museums and why that's a problem in oh so very many ways. A practical experience problem, which brings us to the 101 on today, the section where we do professor work. Okay, Irv, let's change up our history of the world religions formatting a little. Across this giant mega season, we've been starting our 101 with these pesky Socratic questions. I think today, though, we'd be better serving our nerds if we just tell them why we give a care about museums, how we think that's applied religious studies, and also, as is our want, all the imperialism. <laughs> I, I want us to use facts and examples. I want to space my own theater performer roots and soul. I want to act in this audio field trip. Are you with me? Well, of course I'm with you. I'm ride or die. <laughs> But I demand we start with why this episode, why this example, and then I demand we talk imperialism. If you get to be an actress, then, <laughs> then I want to stay yelling at imperialism. My role is straight woman, literally and jokingly, I suppose, <laughs> as well as the star Stone Cold Bummer. <laughs> you are that. And I oblige you happily. You know, I love a museum. An exhibit is a thing I often get for fun after I do a hard thing. It's true. It is a literal way I reward myself. I'm not ragging on museums in this episode per se, but as usual, I'm asking us to make sense of them, especially because when we see religion named in museums, there are some striking patterns that... Yeah, well, we're not, we're not surprised by. And after this episode, our nerds, I suspect, will not be surprised either. I also assume our nerds are like, uh, maybe onto this already, because many of them have been listening for a while. But maybe we can still shock you. Let's find out. All right. Like, as we try to shock and maybe awe our nerds, can I ask, why museums and not, say, music or news or some other practical material example? Okay, well. For, for the record, you picked museums, so <laughs> it's a little obnoxious of you to make me explain why, but okay, sure, fine, why not? Uh, museums, for me, represent a lot of what we're talking about this mega season. That's why. First and foremost, museums are a status thing. They are high culture. They're elite. There's class and race baked right into the concept. Who has access to museums? Who decides what is museum worthy or exhibit worthy? What the capital value of a collection would be? All these hit on my most favorite clusterfuck of issues like gender, race, class, sexuality, and of course, religion. Second, and is deeply important to me, but probably more professionally your bag, museums are literally developed as an idea and go from plots of land to grand buildings filled with stuff, <clears throat> specifically during the European colonial and imperial period. Museums that claim to be international, that represent the world in any capacity, are in many ways just plundered goods from colonized imperial subjects. We'll get there. I know you'll get us there. Okay, but Elise, enough of this monologuing. I need you to get into character. I know, I know. You like the scripted stand-up truth bump style, but today, I think we need to take a different approach. I want a quiz show meets imagination set of games. Are you in? I suppose I don't have a choice, right? Like, we're in this? Nope, we're here. Buckle up, buttercup. All right, so here's what I want to do. I'm going to walk us through some museums across the world through the cunning use of maps. No, not like nation-state maps, but those handy-dandy maps that they give you at the information desk of any museum. All right, that, that sounds great for an audio medium. Shut up and play along, goddammit. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> All right, let's let's get let's get this going. Okay, I'm holding a map. I've unfolded it, never to be refolded again, of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, one of the places my dad took me regularly as a child. I'm here. S such good foley work. You're there. It's <laughs> New York. You feel cool as fuck. You're in the Great Hall just off 82nd. You have that little metal button the Met was famous for. I see these galleries on my map. To the right, the Egyptian gallery, made famous, obviously, in When Harry Met Sally. Left is Greek and Roman art. Ahead of us, we can choose medieval art. European sculpture and decorative arts. Past that, the American collections. I know you're skipping that shit. And some modern art. Oh, but look, on the second floor, I see something up your alley. Florence and Herbert Irving South Asian galleries. Oh, you brought the South Asians and the Jews together. Plus, gallery 234 through gallery 243. 
represent India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. They primarily trace the development of these sculptural arts associated with the temples and shrines of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. And maybe you'd want to see the gallery formerly known as Islamic art, but currently known as Art of the Arab Lands. Oh, wow. Okay. Turkey, Iran, Central Asia, and later South Asia. Okay, so that's a really good job of reading the map at me. But I I want to unpack Arab lands mm. for conservatively mm-hmm. the next 45 minutes. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm feeling a little lost on my map. <laughs> if I'm looking for Christian or Jewish art, where should I go? Because like, I'm already pretty familiar with Islamic, Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain art. I'm, uh-huh. I'm really here to learn. So what, what should I do? I don't, my map is not helping right now. Can't find Christians. Check. Okay. Uh, let me check my maps legend. There is n- nothing about Christianity. Okay. I'm going to use the interactive map online. Okay. That's weird. What? What's weird? Well, so, like, when I search for other religions, they show up with gallery titles, but, like, Christian and Jewish do not. I'm directed to galleries with places or genre names like Italian sculpture and decorative arts or Baroque or Renaissance. Hmm. Goodwin, I Hmm. think we've discovered our very first problem. Dun, dun, in this museum, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, one of the mm-hmm. largest in the world and certainly the most powerful in the U.S., religions associated with white folk and Europe are not on the map. Those religions are just part of culture. They have specific understandings of time, mm-hmm. style, genre that aren't reserved just for experts, but for all museum visitors, right? If Baroque is a word that is expected to have any meaning with the museum going public, but Arab lands is also supposed to have meaning with the museum going public. Wow. That seems to say that religions like Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, not only are these primary organizing identity of the objects, but it's it's sort of like generic that our museum thinks we, that's all we need to know about Indian art. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what I hear you saying is that for Europeans and Americans are ugh, under the umbrella of Judeo-Christian, which oof, we don't even have time to get into why that's a problem. Religion is part of it, but it doesn't define it. Whereas for everyone else, religion is explicitly named as central and crucial to the art itself. Yeah. And like what's bizarre in this is that Renaissance art is definitionally either shit from the Bible or like yeah. tablescapes. Yeah. It's so religious. And yet we're not calling it religious art. We're not labeling it religious art. And and now that we're looking around here, like I, I'm, I'm following you around this beautiful museum. Some of the objects from the wing formerly known as Islamic art and currently called such a mouthful that it will always be the Islamic art wing aren't really religious at all. Yeah. And the lack of art from India that is modern and not just Hindu icons or Hindu statues of deities is it's something all right yeah that's a that's a choice it's almost as if this giant museum this force of culture itself is telling us that the most important thing to know about east central south and west asia north west and east africa and the middle east is that those places are religious and it seems like europe and north america get to be places with like varieties of art and experiences. Weird. It's it's almost like we're watching the world's religions paradigm where hmm. Christianity is the winner of civilization. And also Christian art isn't seen as religious per se, but culture, like it's hmm. universal for all. It's like it's right there on the wall and in my map. Hmm. Hmm. Weird indeed. I got a question though, Megan. Yeah. Do you think this is the case in other museums too? I mean, I have, I have, I have been to some museums and, uh, okay, I can't even commit to the bit. Yes, we know it is. We know it is. Take any European or American museum and you're going to find similar patterns. Which brings me to this question, at least. Look, I know you're getting weirded out by all the Buddhas and Vishnus and prayer niches and Quranic inscriptions just staring at you. Do you know how these objects from faraway lands, like, got here? Oh, I totally know this. <laughs> Imperialism, yep. Orientalism, yes. plunder, and uh-huh. pillage. Yes, yes, yes. Say more. I know you want to. Well, you know how I talk about imperialism? No, do you 
Do you talk about imperials? I have never, I never noticed. Yes, all the time. Yes, we are aware. <laughs> all right. Well, I was going to say, you know how I always talk about imperialism and we often talk about the guys with guns and the guys with pens? Mm-hmm. Well, so like there's a third group here and um, that's the guys with pickaxes and pallets and ships. Mm. The guys with pens tell these laborers and, you know, Indiana Joneses, <laughs> the archaeologists, the anthropologists, the linguists, the art historians, mm. where to dig and where to extract. And the guys with guns, well, they guard these heritage sites. Wait, while so that's, they... just, that's just stealing. Indeed it is. Okay. It is it is also how the British Museum in its entirety, for example, exists. Stealing. Yeah. It's why okay. the Rosetta Stone is just like right there when you walk in. Yeah, I saw it. It's when the Brits called India the jewel in the British crown. This was a this was like a metaphor, but also mm-hmm. it was exceptionally literal. Yeah. Because the Koh-i-Noor diamond, which is 105 carats and one of the largest diamonds in the whole ass world is literally set in the queen mother's crown which is in the tower of london yeah under guard yeah saw that too yes so when we talk about imperialism as the extraction of wealth and resources this is this is what we're talking about because if you look up the koinor this gigantic diamond yeah. you see language like it was ceded from the moguls to the british <laughs> interesting use of passive voice there uh-huh so why are museums like the British Museum, like the Met, like the Grimm, I'm going to say this really badly because my French is poor, <laughs> Musée de Quai Branly, which some activists call the Museum of Stolen Goods in France because it is only dedicated to the arts of Africa and Oceania. What? It's horribly ordered. Like there's no order. It's basically like an like a warehouse of colonial items they didn't know where else to put. There's mm-hmm. dozens of these kinds of collections, museums. But like, Megan, why do these, oh, like why do these museums exist? Stealing, and, apparently. I, I learned about it. It's stealing. Yeah. The answer is colonialism. And specifically a imperial mindset that says these backward heathens only have their backward religion. Modern art, not from Iran, not from India, not from Gambia, not from Benin. Those places only have religion and their religion is ancient like the truly ungodly amount of bronze and stone Hindu deities that hang out in austere museums across London, Paris, New York, Berlin. Icons, literal icons that were ripped out of holy sites by conquering armies, guys with pens, and the middlemen who handled it, frankly, often illegally, like literally stealing. As opposed to like just legally, like under imperialism, it was legal to steal, still stealing motherfuckers, but legal stealing and like the actual like piracy and plunder of holy sites. Sure, 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 sure. Yikes. Yeah, extremely yikes. One of the many reasons why I do not care for Indiana Jones. Jesus. Okay, well, when I planned a funny role-playing moment, this isn't where I thought we'd end up. Oh, you knew exactly what you were in for. (laughs) Twist. Fair enough. So where does that leave us? I think I'm stuck somewhere in the British Museum or maybe the Met or possibly the Louvre, which might be my nightmare because uh, imperialism and crowds. Yeah, I mean, it's bad. It's bad. So here's where we're at. We are safely ensconced in our various homes. So like step back out of the map Muppet style. Okay, okay. I'm safe. I'm safe. Okay. We, the world's religions, we are number two. Okay. So number one, get out of your map. Number two, the world's religions paradigm is all over museums. It's how collections are ordered. It's evident in whose religions are primary. The only thing that we need to know about them, for example, or whose religious art gets classified as art or as a type Mm -hmm. of art. We also see the world religion problem in things that say, Muslims make being inherently religious, even when it isn't like, okay, I've seen chairs, watches, drawings of families all held in wings labeled Islamic art, simply because Muslims made it. Hmm. We would never call a chair that happened to have been built by a Christian religious. Yeah. We barely call paintings of literally Jesus Christ Christian (laughs) art, or at the very least, we don't label the wing that we house it in the Christian wing or the Christianity wing. Mm. 
And the third place that we're at, Megan, is that museums are populated with the world's treasures because of imperialist colonialist violence. Full stop. End of sentence. And without those experiences, the artistic cultural heritage resources would never have been removed from their original locations, put under glass, and then mediated through white, elite, and usually Christian lenses. Yeah. Yeah. So we we just flat out don't have museums without imperialism. And we do not have imperialism without religion. Ergo, religion is in your museum. And whose religion is religious and whose is art or culture tells us so much about the world religion's paradigm, which we have been yelling about for months now. But you know what? Yelling aside, what the hell do we know? I mean, we know a lot, a lot (laughs) actually, but let's hear from an actual expert. So here's... Dr. Andrew Ali Agapur, who could talk to us about so, so much, but we've specifically asked him to tell us about museums, artifacts, exhibitions, and displaying religion. Hmm. He is once again a consulting scholar at the National Museum of American History, and here he is. My name is Andrew Ali Agapur, and I'm an expert on religion, science, and museums. I care that people know about what I study because When religion and science intersect, that's usually a place where things get really weird and interesting. And a museum is a really great way to experience that weirdness. So I'm a consulting scholar at the National Museum of American History. And for the last six or so years, I've been working on an exhibit that just opened called Discovery and Revelation, Religion, Science, and making sense of things. It's an exhibit that has about 40 objects that tell the diverse history of religion and science in America. And I didn't ever think that I was going to be working uh, on a museum exhibit. I went and got a PhD in religious studies uh, and decided to focus on religion and science because when I was in college, I took a few classes that blew my mind teaching me about uh, religion and how it's this crazy intellectual category that kind of doesn't mean anything and has this really crazy specific history. Uh, And similarly, science seems like we know what it is, but the more you study it, the crazier and more diverse it is as a set of like fields of knowledge. And so I got really interested from an early age in studying religion and science these two things that have crazy histories and that once you mix them together, you know, stuff gets real weird. Like religion and science intersects in our bodies, health, our ethics, our metaphysics, our worldviews. I think there's a reason that we often have really strong opinions when it comes to issues around religion and science, like evolution or, or like ethics because these are really important parts of our lives. So I became interested in religion and science, got my PhD. And then uh, Dr. Peter Manceau from the National Museum of American History reached out to me because they were developing an exhibit on religion and science and needed a consultant to help with that project. I immediately jumped on it, like how exciting to be able to use some of my academic training to help uh, with this exhibit. I loved going to the National Museum of American History as a kid, so it was you know, an honor. And then there were a lot of things when it came time to start work that really surprised me. Uh, so I wanted to share with y'all initially some of those surprising things, things that I wish I had known. First of all, the Smithsonian is crazy. Like the National Museum of American History uh, the, the museum where we have this exhibit has 4 million annual visitors. It's got 1.7 million objects in its collection, plus access to millions and millions of more through loans with other museums. And if you all ever go to the National Museum of American History, you can see just how much stuff is there because of you know how many things, so how much material history there is in our country. Like at this museum right now, you can see Abraham Lincoln's hat, the Michael Keaton Batmobile, the first COVID vaccine. We just got that. There's an entire train 
you can see a whole ass train in the museum if you want to. And like a few feet away is Grandmaster Flash's turntable, right? They've got everything at this museum. And one of the crazy first things that I thought when I was being introduced to that is like, how do we make sense of the millions of objects that have been collected here and try to tell a specific story about religion and science? That's where the work ended up being way more collaborative than I ever could have imagined. In the making of an exhibit like this, you want to bring in as many voices as possible, learn as much as possible. And so there were multiple ongoing meetings with academic advisory committees. Uh, there are tons of specialists within the museum who are experts on things like accessibility and diversity and ethics, uh, and who helped to articulate main ideas that can get across to the four million visitors from all walks of life who are going to be coming in and seeing uh, these objects. So something that surprised me a lot about religion and science in museums is just how much process work has to happen in bringing a lot of people together to help narrow things down from millions and millions of possible objects to let's say 30 that you're going to use to tell important stories about a topic like religion and science. We brought academics together and many of them you know said things that that I we, we all agreed uh, about some things about religion and science. For example that religion and science stories often privilege Christianity and big contentious scientific issues like evolution, but that that focus overlooks the wide variety of religious communities and scientific practices that link up and combine and intersect uh, and interact in a whole lot of ways across the United States. So one of the things that we knew in bringing these objects together and creating an exhibit was that we wanted it to reflect the diversity of religions uh, in America and the diversity of ways that religion and science interact. I also learned that museum people get kind of touchy when you talk about objects, because uh, you know, we think of a museum exhibit as being a, a bunch of objects, but it's actually much more than that. Uh, at the Smithsonian, they use this framework called IPOP, Ideas, People, Objects, and physical experiences, like, like things that you can uh, touch and mess around with. The reason being that if you want to tell uh, a story in a space, if you just have objects or just focus on ideas, you're not going to capture all people and the way that they learn. Then in response to neurodiversity and the various ways that people interact in a space, you want to have all of these dimensions of experience captured. And then from there, there's all this thought about how once you do have your objects, your, you know, your people, like portraits and write-ups about those people, concepts, banners, you know, imagery, and objects, once you've got all that stuff decided on, then you have to organize it in a 3D space such that no matter what size you are, no matter what your interest set, as you walk around that space, you're going to have things directly in front of you, things that are far away that are just catching your eye and a whole lot of like ways to exist in the space that have you learning the key takeaways or, or, or asking, more importantly, asking reflective questions based on what you've seen in the exhibit. So that was a big learning experience, just seeing how much work goes into creating an exhibit. Uh, and from there, uh, I guess is where things got really fun, which is that we got to decide on what objects and people and stories were going to represent religion and science in America for the purposes of this exhibit. And we picked some really fun things. I, I really, this is just an extended plug for y'all to go see this exhibit, which is open for the next year. But we've got things like Benjamin Franklin's lightning rod. There was a huge debate uh, when the lightning rod was invented because some of the Puritans uh, back in the 18th century thought that lightning was a way that God like smited people. It was a way to, to dole out justice. 
And so if you had lightning rods that diverted lightning from zapping people, you're taking away one of God's tools. Maybe you're not supposed to do that. There's a huge scientific slash religious debate about that. We've got an EEG headset, electroencephalograph uh, headset, that basically has these sensors that go around your head and measure electrical activity, measure your brain waves. And this particular set of sensors that we have was used as part of this kind of large-scale cooperation between the Dalai Lama and Western neuroscientists in the 90s, where Buddhist practitioners had their brain waves measured to see what could be learned about meditation and its physical effects on the body. We've got a digital prayer mat. Uh, a prayer mat, we've got compasses that will point you towards Mecca, which have been invented, have been existed for centuries and have taken way different forms as technology has evolved. We've got this digital prayer mat that also counts your rukas, something I could have used as a kid that helps you uh, pray since it's different. Salat is different at the different times of the day. We've got a portrait of Henrietta Lacks that we borrowed from the National Portrait Gallery. Henrietta Lacks uh, is the person who has who created the HeLa cell line, an immortal cell line that's used in medical research across the world every single day, which has saved perhaps millions of lives. But Henrietta Lacks died in 1951, and doctors took those cells from her body without her consent. She was an African-American woman whose cells were taken from her, used for science and technology and for-profit research. She never consented to this. Her children have never been paid for this. And we have a portrait of her holding a Bible, which is uh, a religious text that has become really important for her living relatives as a way to make sense of Henrietta Lacks' immortality and sacrifice. We also have other objects that are on loan from other museums, like a peyote tray uh, on loan from the National Museum of the American Indian, which is used for peyote ceremonies. And that lets us tell the story uh, of how peyote has been studied by scientists and kind of has been given legal exception to be not viewed by the American government uh, as an illicit drug if it's being used for religious practices. So that raises really interesting questions about religion and law and how we determine what counts as religion. It also tells the story of indigenous ecological knowledge, the ways that indigenous groups have systems of knowledge that interface with science, not as something that is kind of less than, uh, but kind of equal to as kind of separate but intersecting ways of making sense of the material world. So we've got an incredible collection of objects at this uh, exhibit that tries to tell the, the stories of religion and science in America. That's where I'm coming from. That's what I guess I'm plugging. But y'all asked some really important questions about how we make sense of religion and the world religions model within the space of the museum. And that's the question, right? That's That's an important question that gets asked all the time within uh, the Smithsonian, because working in museums and making these choices also involves reckoning with the past of museums, looking case by case at where these objects have come from, uh, how they were acquired, uh, and also dealing with the fact that collection inevitably reflects the particular ideologies and interests of the people who are doing the collecting generation after generation. So one of the great questions I'll ask is how spaces like museums reflect the world religions model. And one of the first thing that comes to mind there uh, is just how much an exhibit ends up kind of meeting people where they are uh, and some of the choices and sacrifices that you have to make with that. Like when we were doing some early visitor surveys, I was running around with a clipboard asking visitors to the museum that, you know, if you saw uh, an exhibit on religion and science, would you walk in? And the overwhelming response was like, no, religion and science isn't for me. You know, that that's not, that seems like something that's about uh, conflict and, and 
that's not my style. And then I would ask him a question like, all right, well, what is something that interests you uh, in your own past related to religion and science? Then they would say like, oh, well, I'm really interested in, you know, morality uh, and the debates about that. Or I'm really interested in religion and nature and what different religions have thought about nature over time. So then the conversation continues, start to introduce them to some concepts, uh, some counterexamples, some things that might make them question some of their assumptions, and all of a sudden they're interested, right? Uh, and they're filling out the survey how I secretly hope they'll fill it out, which is that like, oh, hey, maybe I would walk into this space. Maybe that's biased survey practice. Uh, but what struck me about those conversations is that whether you're teaching undergrads or trying to influence the four million somewhat random folks who walk through a, a, a museum every year, you're trying to meet people where they are and you're making some judgment calls, right? Sometimes I know that I like wrote captions or, you know, entries and I also co-wrote uh, our book, Discovery and Revelation, uh, which has some amazing pictures and write-ups of these objects, plug, plug. Um, but I had to come to terms with the fact that sometimes I'm going to write Buddhist because if we have a hundred words and I want to complicate your assumptions that religion and science are in conflict, I might just have to write, you know, here is an EEG headset that was used in collaborations between Buddhist meditators uh, or Buddhist monks and Western neuroscientists. And there's already a danger of essentialism there, right? That, of course, it's not mutually exclusive that you can't be a Western neuroscientist and a Buddhist practitioner. And we do talk about that in the book. And uh, But in a caption, right, that's trickier. And we also don't want to essentialize Buddhism as a single thing, right? There's so many different Buddhisms, different groups of Buddhists, some of whom call themselves Buddhists and some don't. Y'all have a great episode about this. Um, and so one of the things that uh, I think makes the work of museum, you know, captions especially, so generative and creative and complicated is that when we speak about religion, we are already using a discourse that we need to, you know, problematize and critique and we have to have questions about how we do it well. But what makes me excited about that and the thing that my experiences at the museum have taught me is that there's something really exciting here about the weird things that we can do together. At the National Museum of American History, everyone I've worked with on this multiple kind of large and sprawling teams People are aware of the history of museums, aware that every exhibit is going to ask deep intellectual questions that might disrupt the very categories that we go in with. And at the end of the day, creating an exhibit is a process of bringing voices together, including a wide variety of experts, deciding on big questions, bringing together the stories of different ideas, people, uh, and objects, uh, and creating a 3D space where people have their minds blown, right? Don't quote me on that, but that's kind of what I feel like they're doing over there. And what makes me excited is that that means that the future of museums is a future that is post-world religions. It's a future that is aware of the history of religion and the violence that it can do as a category. Because the future of museums is, is the future of us, right? We get to educate the next generation about religion. Uh, I really, really hope that every subsequent generation of folks doing work at the museum has listened to Keeping It 101, that if you want to do work that relates to religion, here's some resources for you so you're up to speed. So what's my takeaway? Go visit a museum. Uh, 
the National Museum of American History and Culture, the National Museum of American History, the National Museum of the American Indian, all museums that will change you, where a lot of really brilliant experts have come together to create spaces that will make you question your assumptions, experience new things, learn histories, uh, and, and be changed. And when you go to museum exhibits, I encourage you to then think about how you would do it better. Uh, because you know, no museum can be written from outside of history, from outside of the particular lenses uh, that come in with all the various collaborators who make the thing happen. So yeah, that's my takeaway. Come see our exhibit. You'd think egghead professors would just know about their like little areas of expertise, but it's really thrilling to hear how Andrew applies his nerd to an actual set of objects to create an exhibition. What I hear him saying is basically museums, it's complicated. Yeah, and I was especially interested to hear about the politics of individual objects, the way that curators are really critically thinking and frankly, the limits of those critiques. Like we've been saying all season, and frankly, since this podcast started, it's one thing to deconstruct in theory. In practice, categories, they work because they work. They have purchase and they make sense. Uh, Like in our conversations and in our language, even if they are imperfect at best and horrible at worst. (laughs) Anyway, I guess now we have to go to the National Museum of American History and see this exhibition for ourselves. Yeah, we do. Also, don't they have a book coming out? I feel like- It's in homework. Oh, of course it is. Well, stay tuned for homework then. But now it's time to move on to a little bit, leave it. It's 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 a little bit, leave it where we're letting you know what we think the most important, most interesting, or most challenging part of the topic is. It's a little bit to leave you with. So you mentioned up top, Elise, that I sometimes get to go to a museum as like a treat for myself after I have done a a challenging or exhausting thing. And that is true. Um, (laughs) The the part about that that we did not say is that I have to go alone because (laughs) museums are honestly really challenging for me too. They often require dealing with crowds, I am also like a big time text and word person. So I love museums, but I I don't linger in them. I don't want to like take it in for hours at a time. And I'm given to understand that that's kind of the whole deal with museums. I'm a nightmare. Um, but even with my general uncomfiness with lingering and visuals, I was, for example, absolutely struck dumb the first time I saw a Van Gogh in person. All the tower record posters in the world cannot capture the texture and light of those sunflowers. So my little bit leave it for today is just go to museums if you can. A lot of museums do free nights if if museum going is not in your budget. Go to museums, go to more museums, let them surprise you. And then I also want to ask you to listen to Hannah Gadsby talk on her, her stand-up Nanette about the fact that we don't have Van Gogh's art because he struggled with mental illness. We have sunflowers and everything else because Van Gogh had a brother who loved him and tried to get him help, which is a short but sincere reminder as we close out the season, we've got one more episode, but still, to take care of ourselves as best we can, accept help whether we think we need it or not, and go to therapy if that's available to us. I don't know, man, like year three of COVID is a lot, but museums are great, even if I am not a lingerer, and you should go to them if you can, and please keep wearing your mask while you're there. Yeah, my my little bit leave it is a little bit serious, like similar. Yeah. I love museums. I love them. I love the idea of them. I love that spectacular art and objects and dinosaur bones mm-hmm. would be available to or for anyone who wants to see them. I especially love when museums are truly considered public in that they don't cost to get in. Ta- they're taxpayer supported and anyone can go through the front door regardless of income. I love the idea, like a library, that a museum can make available and accessible literal knowledge, ways of seeing the world that vary from one wall to the next even. And I credit a lot of my early development to the every single weekend visit to New York City's many museums with my dad, an erstwhile character on this pod. (laughs) But, and you know there's a big but coming, as much as I love them, the question of for and to whom is a big one. For whom are museums accessible? To whom do they provide access? And as always, at what cost? 
why, as a small child in New York City, did I have access to Indic temple art? And who in India did not have access because I was looking at their stolen object? Yeah. Which is why conversations about repatriation, reparation, and restoration are crucial. Yeah. But if you don't know, now you know. And if you don't know, now you know. This is the segment where we get one factoid each. Okay, Megan, I'm going first because this is like my favorite. Okay. As people talk about decolonization and repatriation, big key terms in museum thinking right now, where we're thinking really about returning stolen goods, Mm -hmm. I've been obsessed with the story of Emery uh, Miwazulu Diabanza, a Congolese pan-African activist and provocateur who has been just like clandestinely stealing artifacts from a variety of European museums. Oh my He's been arrested in both France and the Netherlands. Um, as far as I know, there could be other places, but his whole platform is basically like Robin Hood meets Cat Burglar. He is liberating. That's the language he's using. He's Mm -hmm. liberating stolen African art from European colonizers, often unabashedly and in plain sight. So I'm going to give you some of those stories in the show notes. And for legal reasons, I do not condone stealing, but also return it all. Okay, that's amazing. I that obsessed, immediately obsessed. This actually goes beautifully with my factoid. Did you know that it's not stealing to bring home literally any object from the British Museum? Hashtag Killmonger was right for the first half of the movie. And then they had to make him an abusive psychopath. So Disney subscribers didn't have to think too hard about colonialism. Anyway, the police, I should say, if you're traveling, might disagree. But spiritually, not stealing. And if you don't know, now you know. Anyway, don't pack up your stuff yet, nerds. It's time for homework. Homework? What homework? Okay, well, obviously, I am both thrilled to recommend any of Dr. Agapur's stuff, but also they're usually incredibly good reads. Andrew mm-hmm. is a gifted gifted writer whose, I think, strength is about making accessible things that feel inaccessible. Mm-hmm. So, like we said, there is a book coming out based on the exhibit Andrew has been working on at the Smithsonian. So it's called Discovery and Revelation, Religion and Science in America, which is both the title of the exhibit and the book. So you can find it uh, online with some with some objects. And also, I should mention that it's co-authored with Peter Manso. So yes. I'll link to that. Zara is is Andrew's one-person show about religion, immigration, and identity. Um, I've got a news piece on it, and I'll link to the show, like to the flyers about the show itself. He has a piece called Does Analytic Thinking Erode Religious Belief? Which is an oldie at this point, but also it's super smart and really interesting at that space of science and religion. Mm -hmm. And frankly, for for like those of you who want to know more about religion, science, pop culture, and comedy, I'm just going to link to Andrew's website. He is a prolific public scholar, and his comedy stories are gold and masterful. So, mm-hmm. okay, on museums, I cannot recommend highly enough Dan Hicks's recent book called Brutish Museums. Get it? British Museums, mm-hmm, Brutish mm-hmm, Museums, mm-hmm. The Benin Bronzes, Colonial Violence, and Cultural Restitution. Uh, it's it's a fabulous book on all of that. Uh, Shimrit Lee's Decolonize Museums is a book coming out really soon. If it's not already, I have um, an advanced copy and it's super smart. And then in the news, I will link to some of um, Miwazulu Diabanza's uh, activism and uh, how how he's stealing things from museums in the name of anti-imperialism. Good for him. I love that. Ugh. Okay. Uh, plus one million for all things Andrew. Um, it has nothing to do with museums, but uh, Andrew and I actually wrote a thing together about religion abuse and Kimmy Schmidt for religion dispatches in the early days of my book project. The spiritual, if not printed title of which the, the piece that we wrote is always be uppercutting. You're welcome. Uh, I also want to lift up cool conversations among pod besties. So I'm going to recommend you listen to Andrew chat about his research and more with friend of the pod, Greg Soden on classical ideas. As for the rest, uh, again, I love museums, but my attention span makes me a nightmare to bring to them. Uh, two out of five. Do not recommend. So I I love them, but I am not a lingerer. So in the spirit of religion in museums, though, I will say that should you have occasion to be on Montmartre, uh, the hill at the, the above Paris, the Dali Museum is a goddamn treasure chest and is also air conditioned if it happens to be 95 degrees Fahrenheit while you're visiting, as it was when I was there. Um 
I will also highlight two cool pieces about scholarship in Museum for Our Nerds, though. So the first is an illustrated guide to curating a museum exhibit written and drawn by B. Aaron Cole called I Make Exhibits, uh, first published in Contingent Magazine, and if my memory serves, is now being used by the Smithsonian and the New York Public School System, which is pretty cool. Um, also, the editor-in-chief of Contingent, Erin Bartram, is both a historian of religion and a museum worker. She does dope stuff at the Mark Twain House, which you can learn more about if you follow her on Twitter at Erin, E-R-I-N underscore Bartram, B-A-R-T-R-A-M. Uh, the second piece I want to recommend is by our guiding light, the self-described Mr. Burns to our Bart Simpson, Dr. Judith Watsonfeld. She wrote a really cool reflection about religion at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And she wrote the piece for Sacred Matters right after the museum opened in 2017. Also, look, if you haven't visited the National Museum for African American History and Culture, woof. All I can, all I can say is you have to go. You just, you just have to. I have no words to describe being in the presence of Nat Turner's Bible. I just, ugh. but I can link you to the objects page on the museum's website and encourage you to go explore it because truly what a wealth of American history, culture, and religion. All really good recommendations. Hey, thanks. Big thanks to those of you writing reviews on iTunes, Amazon, and Google. It really helps. Our nerd of the week is Megan Eddy. If you want to be a nerd of the week, write us a review. We'll shout you out and send some love directly. Yes, but this week we love Megan Eddie Beth best of all. That's right. It's the only new review, so she gets prime spot. They are number one. The rest of you all, number twos. You're welcome. <laughs> not really. It's not encouraging anyone to do this work for us. <laughs> I no. Not, and, and not the tone we want, but keep <laughs> I was just going for the poop joke. Anyway, join us next time for the dramatic conclusion of the history of the world, religions, part one, where we reveal why exactly Elise has had a Mel Brooks runner for the whole damn season. Shout out to our research assistant, Alex Castellano, whose transcription work makes this pod accessible and therefore awesome. Need more religion nerdery? You know where to find us. It's on Twitter. You can find Megan, that's me, on Twitter at MPGPHD, Annalise at P-R-O-F-I-R-M-F, or the show at Keeping It underscore 101. Find the website at KeepingIt101.com, peep the Insta if you want to, and drop us a rating or review in your podcatcher of choice. And with that, peace out, nerds. Do your homework. It's on the syllabus. Don't trip. I'm gonna take it off your hands for you. These items aren't for sale. How do you think your ancestors got these? You think they paid a fair price? Or did they take it like they took everything else? <laughs>